Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Friday, February 23rd, 2024. President Joe Biden announces new sanctions targeting Russia's financial sector, military-industrial complex, procurement networks, and those helping Russia evade previous sanctions. More than 500 people and entities targeted. As Russia's war in Ukraine is about to hit the two-year mark on Saturday, and it's been a week since Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny died in a Russian prison. President Joe Biden saying, we in the U.S. are going to continue to ensure that Putin pays the price for his aggression abroad and repression at home. Coming up, we hear from the president, also Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, in Kiev meeting with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Republican Congressman Matt Gates on his opposition to providing more aid to Ukraine. And the Russian perspective from the U.N. Ambassador Vasily Nebedzia at today's U.N. Security Council meeting. The White House is reacting to the Congressional Hispanic Caucus's criticism of the reports. The president may use executive orders to limit the ability of migrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border to seek asylum. We'll hear from the press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre. About a week until federal government funding for a portion of the government expires. The rest runs out a week after that. We'll get the latest on efforts to avoid a shutdown from Politico budget and appropriations reporter Kaden Emma. And Supreme Court Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Amy Coney Barrett speak at the National Governors Association winter meeting in Washington at a panel titled How to Disagree Agreeably. UPI reports the United States marked the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine with the announcement Friday of an unprecedented package of sanctions penalizing Moscow for its war of conquest on Ukraine and the death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. The more than 500 sanctions target individuals implicated in Navalny's death, as well as the country's financial, defense, and energy sectors, and entities on several continents that evade sanctions. U.S. President Joe Biden said in a statement released on the eve of the two-year anniversary of the invasion. Biden said the United States would also impose new export restrictions on nearly 100 entities for providing backdoor support for Russia's war machine. He said, we are taking action to further reduce Russia's energy revenues and have directed my team to strengthen support for civil society, independent media, and those who fight for democracy around the world. That was from United Press International. The president spoke about the sanctions at the start of his remarks at the White House to the state governors visiting for the National Governors Association winter meeting. Before I begin, I want to say a few words about an important anniversary that we mark tomorrow. Two years ago, shortly before dawn, Russian troops marched across the border in Ukraine. And Putin believed he could easily bend the will and break the resolve of the free people of Ukraine, that he could roll into Ukraine and he would roll over them. Two years later, he remains wrong. He didn't do that. He wasn't able to do that. Kiev is still standing. Ukraine is still free. And the people of Ukraine remain unbowed and unbroken in the face of Putin's vigorous onslaught. This is due to their sheer bravery and their sacrifice, but it's also due to us. Remember, the United States pulled together a coalition of more than 50 nations, 50 nations to support Ukraine. We unified and expanded NATO. We can't walk away now. And that's what Putin is betting on. He's betting on we're going to walk away. That's why I'll be speaking to the G7 folks, some of the heads of the European Union and uh, NATO today. That's why I'm announcing more than 500 new sanctions in response. In response to Putin's brutal war of conquest, in response to uh, Alexei Navalny's death, 
Because make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Alexei's death. Yesterday, I met with Alexei's wife and daughter in California, where his daughter attends college. Alexei was an incredibly courageous man. His family is courageous as well. I assured them his legacy will continue to live around the world. And we in the United States are going to continue to ensure that Putin pays the price for his aggression abroad and repression at home. But let me be clear. House of Representatives must pass the bipartisan national security bill. The bill provides urgent funding for Ukraine, and it passed overwhelmingly in the Senate. And there's no question, none, none, if the Speaker called for a vote in the House, it would pass easily today. Instead, they went on vacation. I mean, it's just, anyway. <laughs> Look, folks, all kidding aside, history's watching. The clock is ticking. Brave Ukrainian soldiers and civilians are dying. Russia. Russia is taking Ukraine territory for the first time in many months. But here in America, the Speaker gave the House a two-week vacation. They have to come back. They have to come back and get this done. Because failure to support Ukraine in this critical moment will never be forgotten in history. It will be measured, and it will have impact for decades to come. And I want to thank all you governors here for and I urge you, if you agree with me, and many of you do, to urge your congressional representatives to force this bill to be brought up. America can be, to prove, America can be relied upon. America stands up for freedom. We never bow to anyone, particularly Putin. President Biden at the White House with many state governors in town for the National Governors Association meeting. CBS News reports that Friday's actions include State Department sanctions on three Russian officials the U.S. says were connected to Alexei Navalny's death, as well as sanctions from the State Department and Treasury Departments on 500 entities linked to Russia's war effort. Another 90 companies were added to the Commerce Department's entity list, which restricts their ability to do business in the U.S. The White House National Security Communications Advisor John Kirby was asked today at his online news conference about a step the Biden administration has not taken. Our next question will go to the line of Nandita Bose. You should be able to unmute yourself. It does not look as if you use the December executive order to target foreign financial firms uh, that help Russia circumvent sanctions. Uh, can you explain the decision not to target these foreign financial firms in this action? I mean, is this something that we should expect to see soon? I think it's critical that we remember to put it into some perspective. We would need additional legal authorities to be able to do that. Um, We continue to be supportive of having uh, those domestic legislative authorities that would give us the flexibility as we continue to discuss with partners and allies how best to cease Russia's aggression uh, and to assure that Russia pays for the damage that it's caused to Ukraine. Um, It is something, uh, as I think you heard from uh, the deputy uh, the Deputy Secretary of the Treasury today. That's something that we continue to be in touch with uh, on the Hill and with our allies and partners. Um, there's several key, several pieces of legislation that, that have been working their way through Congress. We're watching that closely. Um, and because the vast majority of the immobilized sovereign assets aren't in the U.S., again, I want to stress it's absolutely key that we take action in concert with uh, our international partners, and that's our focus right now. 
The White House National Security Communications Advisor John Kirby in an audio online news conference. Associated Press writes that the European Union announced Friday that it is imposing sanctions on several foreign companies over allegations that they have exported dual-use goods to Russia that could be used in its war against Ukraine. From CNN, the Senate, U.S. Senate, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is in Ukraine to reiterate U.S. support for the country and ratchet up pressure on House Republicans back home to pass a foreign aid bill that includes further assistance for Ukraine and Israel. Four other Democratic senators, Jack Reed of Rhode Island, Michael Bennett of Colorado, Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, and Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire, traveled with Senator Schumer as part of a congressional delegation to mark the two-year anniversary of the Russian invasion and to meet with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, according to a statement from his office that was from CNN. Ukrainian President Zelensky posted a video of the meeting. You're going to hear from him and then Senator Schumer. I know that Americans on the side of truth and we share common values. And thank you very much that you are helping us to save democracy, not only in Ukraine. Of course, fight for democracy and freedom in the world. So thank you very much for your understanding. Thanks for coming to, to Lviv. Very interesting, very historical, very, very patriotic city. And uh, I know that you had already meetings with the uh, defending minister, minister of defense, and chief commander, yes. Sersky. I think you had brief. Of course, we will continue to speak about our topics and, and also about common, common challenges on the battlefield, etc. But I wanted to thank you to President bipartisan support for especially the day before this day, the 24th, for those fact that all these two years we always had feeling that we are not alone, that the United States with us. Now, of course, we understand all the challenges what United States also has in the interior politics, but anyway, we, you know, cross fingers that we're still together. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, thanks for first big decision, which was so necessary, uh, the um, supporting by Senate, this so, so big, important, huge support for Ukraine. And of course, I wanted to, to discuss with you and your opinions about what will be in the House and how we can come closer to the positive results for, for all of us. Yes. Welcome. Thank you. We are here because we have to be here. This is not just a nice thing to do. We are obligated to come. It's imperative to come. Because what you and your leadership and the men and women of Ukraine are doing is vital not only to this beautiful, wonderful country, and it's the first time I've been here, but I see how beautiful it was. As you know, my ancestors, seven yeah. generations ago, lived here. But you are, you are not alone, because what you are doing, the Ukrainian people, sacrificing with their lives and their fortune, you are not only defending this beautiful country, which we want to see free, you are defending Europe, you are defending the West, and you are defending the honor and strength of the United States. So we believe in you. We are passionate about believing in you. And um, we know that history is looking upon you, but looking upon us as well. 
We have come because, as you said, the Senate and the good bipartisan Democrat and Republican have voted for the aid that is so needed. Unfortunately, the House is still not made up their minds. And one of the reasons, the main reasons we've come here is to help them make up their minds. We want to tell them what we have seen. We want to show them we have heard from so many that if you don't get the aid, you will lose the war. But if you get the aid, you will win the war. I take it that is accurate. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, at a meeting with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in Kiev. That video and audio was posted by the president and the majority leader leading a delegation with four other Democratic senators. The $95 billion foreign aid bill, $60 billion for Ukraine, the rest for Israel, humanitarian aid for the Palestinians, also military aid for Taiwan, was passed by the Senate last week. Congressman Matt Gaetz, Republican of Florida, is opposed to more aid for Ukraine, and he spoke at the CPAC meeting today, National Harbor, Maryland, the Conservative Political Action Conference. We blocked more money to Ukraine for now, and we punted Kevin McCarthy, who authorized $115 billion to Ukraine that we now see slushing around the money laundering capitals of the world. We shouldn't have any foreign aid to any other country without corresponding cuts to our own bloated federal budget. If you want to send aid to Israel, fine. Pay for it by defunding the United Nations. I want the UN to be zeroed out in our budget. The US should be out of the UN, and the UN should be out of the US. take the money away from the entity that had some of their own people attacking and killing Israelis. Seems like a good offset. I know we've heard a lot about Alexei Navalny's death recently. Tragic. You should be allowed to oppose the ruling party in your country without risk of poison or prison or death. But I would remind everyone, especially the journalists in the back, that Ukraine's Zelensky imprisoned an American journalist who then died in prison, Gonzalo Lira. Not only that, but Zelensky supports outlawing an entire religion, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And he just canceled Ukraine's presidential elections. Now, call me old-fashioned, but I actually prefer democracies that hold elections. To be clear, Putin is no friend of ours. He partners with adversaries like Iran and is opposed to America's interest. But realism in our foreign policy means being clear-eyed. It is being anti-war, not anti-American. My goals are clearly defined. Can the neoconservative followers of John Bolton and Liz Cheney and Nikki Haley say the same? And what's really left unsaid in this Ukraine aid debate is that Europe's fecklessness is a direct result of them becoming national security welfare queens largely at your expense. Our European allies, which consist of some very wealthy nations, underspend on their own defense because they dupe you into paying for much of it. Spain sends less on its military than we do on the Department of Interior. France spends less money on their military than we do on the Department of Labor. I think they're allergic to labor in France. (laughs) With friends like these, do we really need to be searching behind every sand dune or in every Central Asian cave for more enemies? 
We went straight from a welfare program for Afghan poppy farmers to this. America is not the world's police force, and we are not the world's piggy bank. It is not sustainable. It doesn't make us stronger to borrow money from China to give to another country. We are saddling future generations with so much debt, all while becoming weaker at our core. Congressman Matt Gaetz, Republican from Florida at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference meeting in National Harbor, Maryland, not far from Washington, D.C. The United Nations Security Council held a meeting today about the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Russian Ambassador Vasily Nebentia defended what Russia has been calling a special military operation. Ukraine has completely failed in its loudly broadcast counter counteroffensive. And yet the West continues to pump the Kiev regime full of weaponry, encouraging it to throw more and more lives of Ukrainians in the flame of conflict, which... Uh, the United States already setting aside any decorum uh, now calls uh, a profitable business venture. In fact, it's that's because it's become s- so profitable for the military-industrial complex. In parallel, there was a stubborn attempt to promote some kind of process to uh, discuss some kind of completely dead-end pseudo-peace formula at different meetups where either in Copenhagen or in Davos, using various tricks, countries from the global south and east were dragged into these events in order to then uh, uh, present this as a broad international support. At the same time, it is clear that the countries of the global majority uh, clearly see uh, the real background of these intrigues and uh, have no wish to play the role of extras in them, just as they understand that uh, it's, it's completely pointless to discuss anything without the participation of Russia. So what has this year brought for Ukraine? Hundreds of thousands senseless victims, a looming collapse of its economy, a deep crisis of its statehood and governance. Because for the people of Ukraine, it's, inc- it's increasingly clear the, uh, how ineffective and how, how uh, uh, the ineffective of its government and how much it lacks independence. Vasily Nebedzia, through an interpreter, the Russian ambassador to the United Nations at today's U.N. Security Council meeting in New York City. We have the full video of the meeting ahead of Saturday's two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine at our video library, cspan.org. story from Al Jazeera, the United Nations has said that more than 14 million Ukrainians were forced to flee their homes at some point in the two years since Russia's invasion, as U.N. rights chief Volker Turk spoke of the horrific human cost of the conflict. And now to the war between Israel and Hamas from the Times of Israel. This story, Israel will advance plans for the construction of more than 3,000 settlement homes in response to a deadly terror shooting in the West Bank, the finance minister announced late Thursday night. The move is almost certain to cause a rift with the Biden administration, which is already under massive domestic and international pressure over its support for Israel in the latter's war against Hamas and has viewed Israeli settlement construction as a major impediment to an eventual two-state solution. That was the reporting from the Times of Israel. Secretary of State Antony Blinken addressed this during a news conference in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. He's there for the meeting of G20 foreign ministers. Look, we just saw uh, another horrific uh, terrorist attack, and this in Mal uh, Arumin, 
and uh, my first thought is with the, the victims of that attack. And we continue, will con continue, excuse me, to fully support Israel's right to security, to self-defense, uh, and to dealing with, uh, with terrorism. On settlements, uh, we've seen the reports, and um, I have to say we're disappointed in the announcement. Uh, it's been long-standing U.S. policy under Republican and Democratic administrations alike that new settlements are counterproductive to reaching an enduring peace. Uh, they're also inconsistent with international law. Uh, our administration maintains a firm opposition to settlement expansion. And in our judgment, this only weakens, doesn't strengthen Israel's security. Secretary of State Antony Blinken at a news conference in Brazil, and that statement of Israeli settlements being inconsistent with international law, there are a number of stories that point out that this is a reversal of what happened under the Donald Trump administration, known as the Pompeo Doctrine, named for Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, saying that per se, the settlements are not inconsistent with international law. This is Washington Today. The White House is responding to criticism from the Congressional Hispanic Caucus on the reports President may announce executive actions limiting asylum claims from people crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. The CHC chair, Congresswoman Nanette Barragon, Democrat of California, putting out a statement on Thursday that reads, We understand how frustrating it is that Republicans in Congress continue to block any funding requests by President Biden to address the southern border. But it is unbelievable to hear that the White House would consider executive actions to prevent or restrict migrants from seeking asylum at our southern border and possibly use some of the same methods as former President Donald Trump. Migrants have a legal right to seek asylum when they arrive at our border. Asylum has provided refuge for families, women and children and other vulnerable populations since World War II. The Congressional Hispanic Caucus statement goes on that CHC opposes unilateral attempts by the White House to change our asylum system and put human lives at risk. Many of the changes reportedly being discussed would do little to reduce the stress or number of migrants that continue to arrive at our southern border. Enforcement-only policies do not work. Here is the question today to the White House Press Secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre. We've asked about this before. The Congressional Hispanic Caucus is once again concerned they are not being brought in to conversations about potential executive orders and other actions taken by the White House saying that what they're reading about, at least, is unacceptable to them, and they haven't had much dialogue with the White House about it. Are there any plans to, to remedy that? So first, we no decisions haven't been made. I want to be very, very clear about that again. And I would say that we are in regular communication, regular contact with members of, of uh, the Hispanic Caucus, members of the Progressive Caucus, just members of... Well, they uh, claim they're not. From my understanding, and I've asked about this, we've been in regular communications with them. Uh, and so, uh, obviously, we respect we respect uh, congressional members. We work uh, we work very closely with them on many many issues. Uh, we've been in regular communication and regular uh, uh, contact. We just don't have any decisions to make uh, on any executive actions. We just don't have any decisions that have been made. And. That may be why they haven't been talked to about that particular uh, uh, issue, but I would say as it relates to uh, immigration, as it relates to uh, what we've been trying to do, certainly as it related to the bipartisan uh, agreement that came out of the Senate, we were in regular discussion. No decision has been made. No decision has been made here. The White House Press Secretary, Corrine Jean-Pierre, at her news conference 
This issue continues to be an issue at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference. Here is a panel that includes Stephen Miller, former senior advisor to President Trump, Congressman Dan Bishop, Republican of North Carolina, and Ken Paxton, Texas Attorney General, Republican. Well, as I, as I say sometimes, the immigration issue is extremely simple. The policies involved in fixing it are very complicated. The simple part is seal the border, deport all the illegals. Now, <laughs> that's, the, that's the short answer, right? It's very, you get in, you have two policy objectives that you proceed with uh, utter determination on. Seal the border, no illegals in, everyone here goes out. That's very straightforward. In terms of the policy sets to accomplish this, as President Trump showed in his first term, it's, it's, a, it's a series of interlocking domestic and foreign policies to accomplish this goal. In no particular order, just to rattle off a few fast, you have your safe third agreements, you have remain in Mexico, finish the wall, you have robust prosecutions of illegal aliens, you do interior repatriation flights to Mexico, not back to the north of Mexico, it's very important. You re-implement Title 42, you have several muscular 212Fs, that's the travel ban authority, we did a few of those in the Trump administration. You would bring those back and add new ones on top of that. You would establish large-scale staging grounds for removal flights. So you grab illegal immigrants, and then you move them to the staging grounds, and that's where the planes are waiting for federal law enforcement to then move those illegals home. You deputize the National Guard to carry out immigration enforcement, and then you also deploy the military to the southern border, not just with a mission to observe, but with an impedance and denial mission. In other words, you reassert the fundamental constitutional principle that you don't have a right to enter into our sovereign territory to even request the asylum claim. The military has the right to establish a fortress position on the border and to say no one can cross here at all. I think... The significance, the significance, Stephen, of what you just said is, in all the things you just laid out, we've got to have a president to do it, but it also is, you can't proceed in a way in which you're tentative and unsure. When Stephen said the idea that you, you uh, deport everybody and everybody applauded, that's just because it's obvious what has to occur. And uh, so you've got to actually be willing to take the step to do it. I look around this panel of wallflowers. I I don't think you'll have any problem if you have people like this in leadership. Uh, In fact, I've never been on a panel where I was like the lightest, you know, the the easiest going guy. But but I think that's that's something that's that's become clear in our politics. That's what we've got to do. Our nation's survival depends on that sort of aggressiveness in asserting ourselves. Finish this out, General Paxton. What are we doing in Texas? What do we need to do? If you're the future attorney general, what do we need to do to fix this problem? Uh, Texas has no interest in this issue. <laughs> no, it's, it's so obvious. We saw what worked under Trump. It was called enforcing the very things that he talked about. And as soon, as soon, literally day one, Joe Biden comes out and said, I'm not deporting anybody. And off to the races, we sued him. Within three days, we had an injunction. And he dismantled Remain in Mexico. He dismantled Title 42. He wasted all the resources appropriated to build the wall and let it all rot, paid contractors not to work, and all of that went to waste. The catch and release started up again. So all the policies that worked that brought all the numbers down, when you reverse those policies, all the numbers went up. 
I, I don't know why the media can't figure this out, but it's really obvious. And Joe Biden is clearly in partnership without saying it, without having a written contract with the cartels. The cartels, this is true. Just true. He has told them openly, bring as many people here as possible as fast as you can. You don't have to hide from us anymore. Remember they used to hide? They used to try to sneak across? That is not what happens anymore. Unless they're like terrorists or really bad criminals, because they even let criminals in. We've, been, we've sued them over that. So this is an administration that this is exactly what they want. They know they're helping the cartels bring drugs in, human trafficking. It is all designed by our own government. And so we are in a war with the cartels, with the Chinese importing fentanyl, and our own president against the United States and our country and my state. So we have to have a new president because this is clearly not working. Ken Paxton, Texas Attorney General, Republican. Before that, Congressman Dan Bishop, Republican of North Carolina. And the other person on the panel, Stephen Miller, who is the president of America First Legal and a former senior advisor to former President Donald Trump. They were at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, meeting in Maryland. Washington Today continues in a moment. This is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team, along with my colleague, Nate. Join us as we celebrate C-SPAN's 45th anniversary and our inaugural Founders Day campaign. It all started as a bold experiment on March 19, 1979, when C-SPAN first brought coverage of the House of Representatives into living rooms across America. Let's celebrate C-SPAN's visionary founders who believed in offering unfiltered access to the inner workings of our political process. From Congress to the White House to the courts and beyond, C-SPAN has documented history unfolding without commentary or spin for over four decades. Help us keep it going. Visit cspan.org slash donate today to give a gift in celebration of C-SPAN's Founders Day. Your donation honors the original vision of C-SPAN's founders and helps to advance our mission for years to come. Make your donation today at cspan.org slash donate. Thank you. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the free C-SPAN Now mobile app and wherever you find your podcasts. An article at CNN, Congress is quickly approaching a pair of government funding deadlines with one week to go before a potential partial shutdown and lawmakers at an impasse with no clear plan in place to avoid it. On Friday, the federal government will formally initiate the process of preparing for a potential shutdown, participating in the mandatory but standard process of releasing shutdown guidance to agencies ahead of the March 1st funding deadline. That means federal departments and agencies impacted by the first deadline will need to update and review their shutdown plans. CNN article also has this, that this feels familiar. That's because this is the fourth time since September that lawmakers have run up against a funding deadline, passing stopgap bills in the nick of time in September, November, and once more in January to keep the government running. The White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, was asked about this. Um, what's the view from the White House right now about how conversations are going about government funding and spending bills next week ahead, or ahead of next week's significant deadlines? I, I mean, look, 
and we're, you know, we've been here before and we've always been very clear. House Republicans have a job to do. Uh, their basic duty is to keep the government open. They need to not play politics here. They need to get this done. Uh, we've been very clear about that. Uh, and, uh, and it is their job. If you think about it, and I've talked about this before, House Republicans, two-thirds of House Republicans voted for the deal last year. And just early this year, they reaffirmed that deal. So what's the problem? What's the problem here? They need to get this done. They need to get this done. There are important programs that the American people need. And so they need to move forward and make sure we keep the government open. I feel like I've asked you this before yeah. deadlines, but are you anticipating another short-term funding bill, another CR, and is the president okay with that this time around too? So look, I'm not gonna get into legislative negotiations from here, but look, it is, we gotta be really clear that these are programs that are critical, that are important to the American people, and it needs to get done. It needs to get done. So I'm not going to get into negotiations from here. Uh, House Republicans uh, need to do their jobs here. Uh, they need to get to work, and they need to make sure that we they avoid, they prevent a needless shutdown. And are White House officials involved in any conversations like Ledge Affairs with congressional leaders this weekend about getting closer to something? So I can say that OMB, uh, OMB and our Ledge Affairs team are in touch with lawmakers uh, from both parties every day on the need to keep the government uh, open. But again, this, is, this, this problem uh, is a problem of the House Republicans making. It's not something that we can fix for them. This is something that they can deal with. This is something that they need to actually work on. And uh, they need to get to work here. They need to get to work. The White House Press Secretary, Corrine Jean-Pierre, at her briefing in the White House. Caitlin Emma joins us to discuss the latest government funding deadlines. She's a budget and appropriations reporter for Politico. And Caitlin, what is Congress's plan to deal with this fast approaching deadline to fund the government? The first one's on March 1st. Right. The situation at the moment is uh, a little bit fluid, but essentially congressional leaders are hoping to announce something on Sunday night. What that likely will look like at the moment is some combination of spending bills that would deal for a very small portion of the government alongside yet another short-term spending bill to buy time for negotiating the rest of these fiscal 2024 measures. So we are Kind of, again, doing the bare minimum, um, but there's some progress. You know, there's, there is the expectation that maybe both sides will be able to agree on two to four spending bills that deal with, again, a very small slice of discretionary spending. But when it comes to the March 8th deadline, which is the second deadline that Congress is looking at, uh, they're almost certainly going to need more time. So that would be the fourth short-term spending bill that Congress has to pass this year. Interesting. And so the targets they need to hit in order to avoid a shutdown, essentially three days before they return, they're working already underway. Their work is already underway off the floor. Right. They've been I mean, we've been in recess now for a couple of weeks, obviously, in both chambers. But the conversations on both sides at the staff level and both, you know, at the uh, the appropriator level have been ongoing. A lot of issues have been kicked up to congressional leadership and those essentially uh, center on policy disagreements. So that has been, you know, probably the biggest issue here is this push from, you know, House conservatives in particular to secure these, you know, nearly impossible policy wins across these bills. Um, you know, Speaker Mike Johnson is going to have to make a choice in terms of how hard he wants to fight for those things uh, versus meeting the March 1 and March 8 deadlines. 
And you mentioned the the policy challenges. Conservative House Freedom Caucus has been saying that even they want an update on what the plan is from the House Speaker. They point out that Congress is in session just three days before the government shutdown, the partial government shutdown. They want lower spending levels, real policy wins, as they call it. What are those challenges that Speaker Johnson is facing with his small majority? And what are some of his options? Right. Well, what he can decide to do is, uh, you know, essentially abandon this push for conservative policy riders uh, because he kind of might have to. Uh, He is looking at not having enough Republican votes to pass these spending bills alone. So he's almost certainly going to have to rely on Democratic votes to pass these spending bills. Um, What that could look like, you know, possibly the House might have to do this under suspension, meaning they'll need two thirds of the members present voting to pass whatever spending bills. Um, You know, this essentially bypasses the Rules Committee and uh, a problem that he has there because there are several conservatives on the Rules Committee who would be, you know, more than happy to sort of screw (laughs) things up going forward. But, you know, essentially Democrats are never going to agree to putting anti-abortion policy riders or anti-LGBT policy riders into these bills. So he really is going to have to make a decision about how hard he wants to push for these things versus just once again, working with Democrats to keep the government open. You've written about some of the other complications as well, including that the deal that made this most recent short-term funding possible were across the board cuts. What are What would trigger those cuts? What are the details there? So this all kind of stems from last summer's debt ceiling deal, uh, this two-year deal that was negotiated again last summer by Speaker McCarthy and President Joe Biden, uh, essentially included this provision that on April 30th, if the government, any part of the government, is still operating under any short-term spending deal, Um, that a significant amount of money would be cut uh, across the federal government. So this was sort of a backstop to ensure that appropriators, congressional leaders got their work done. Um, You know, clearly, here we are. It's almost March. Um, That backstop, you know, they obviously have some time to avoid that. So, you know, again, Congress can afford to pass yet another short-term spending patch to, you know, continue to finish their work on these fiscal 2024 bills. So really, I guess if you're thinking about it, April 30th, is the real deadline to get all of this done. But the appetite for continuing to pass these short-term spending patches is quickly evaporating. Again, this is the fourth continuing resolution that Congress will be taking up just this fiscal year alone. So, you know, there's more time. There is time to get this done, but we are sort of ending, you know, nearing the end of the window in which to finally fund the government for real this fiscal year. You've pointed out in some of your reporting that tension still lingers over the failed border security deal and the speaker's refusal to take up the foreign aid package. So when you're in the Capitol next, what is it going to feel like there on the ground? I mean, I think there are so many questions about next steps, you know, not only with government funding, with but with the border security package that you just mentioned. I mean, everybody is waiting to see what Speaker Johnson is going to do with what the Senate passed, which essentially left out that border security deal, but still would deliver a lot of emergency funding to Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. You know, he hasn't said what he's going to do about that yet. He said that government funding is a priority first. You know, we're already looking at yet another CR that's going to kick government funding at few more weeks into the future. So there's just a lot of questions about how are we going to get all of this done? And, you know, clearly Ukraine is entering its 
third year in this war against Russia, and they are in desperate need of money. Uh, you know, Senate Democrats are there right now. So there's going to be a lot of appetite, a lot of focus on Speaker Johnson, a lot of clamoring for information about what he's thinking. Is there a concrete plan? What are next steps? And how are his members going to respond to that? Caitlin Emmer reports on the budget and appropriations for Politico. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. On Wall Street today, the Dow up 62, Nasdaq down 44, S&P up 1. From the National Governors Association 2024 Winter Meeting website, reads that the NGA will host the nation's governors, federal officials, and leaders from business, academia, and philanthropy in Washington, D.C., February 22nd to the 24th, with solutions-driven conversations and bipartisan collaboration on the top policy issues facing states and territories. And on Friday, February 23rd, NGA Chair Utah Governor Spencer Cox will host a plenary session with U.S. Supreme Court Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Amy Coney Barrett, who will share their perspectives on how to disagree agreeably, part of Governor Cox's Disagree Better initiative that was from the website. The justices today talked about how they work hard to develop respect and collegiality at the Supreme Court, both professionally to incorporate another justice's views into an opinion if possible so that justice can join the opinion or dissent, and personally saying that they meet for lunch many times a week. They also gave some views and advice for the rest of the country. First, here is Justice Barrett. I really do think, I think there's been a lot of conversation about free speech on college campuses recently, and I hope those conversations continue because, you know, we are a pluralistic society, and we may have red states and blue states, but above all, we're the United States, and it is a pluralistic society. That's what the First Amendment protects, our First Amendment freedoms, and if we can't survive by tolerating differences and learning to compromise and learning to allow one another to express other views, we're going to sink. We won't be able to get anything done as a country. Great. Thank you. Can I? Thank you. Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett sitting beside her, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who said she wished politics was kept out of the judiciary. I think the worst thing that's happened to the judiciary is political parties. And, and, and at a certain point, political parties decided to take conversations that were having, were occurring between and among judges and academics about how best to approach uh, interpretation of the Constitution and statutes. They began to adopt our buzzwords uh, as buzzwords some of the discussions we were having, like on originalism and plain text and things like that. But instead of discussing those terms uh, with respect to approaches that um, made sense and why, with all the nuances that those approaches contain, um, they just began to label people according to the buzzwords. And that doesn't do justice to the fact that Justice Barrett was describing the cases we disagreed. She should also be describing the cases where we do agree, of which there are many. Many. And not just between her and me, but between me and Clarence Thomas, me and Neil Gorsuch, me and all of them, including Nino Scalia. We dissented together on a number of cases. So... The nuances of how we 
talk about legal theories is missing from the sort of banty words that politicians have given to judges. And I think that's what um, Justice Roberts and Justice Breyer are talking about. We don't come into this work as a Republican or a Democrat. We don't even come to it as an originalist or a plain text. Well, maybe I'm speaking for you. I think you're, you come into it, as a, and I do as well, as a judge who believes that our job is to find the best answer to the legal questions that the court is presented with. And so I think that's sacred to almost all of us. And remember, thankfully for us, presidents don't last that long, right? There's eight years. <laughs> so for us to be beholden to one of them is a little crazy, you right. know? Um, no, seriously, there, there is built into the system a protection, which is lifetime appointment, that should give us the freedom to grow as we grow in the job as well. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor and beside her, Justice Amy Coney Barrett at the National Governors Association Winter Meeting in Washington today. Story from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Nathan Wade appeared to make at least 35 visits to the Hapeville neighborhood where Fonnie Willis was living before the district attorney hired him to lead Fulton County's election interference prosecution, according to cell phone data included in a court submission filed Friday. The filing by attorneys for Donald Trump raises fresh questions about the relationship between the two prosecutors, which the former president and other defendants argue has tainted the case against them and should result in Willis and her office being disqualified. That was from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The U.S. House of Representatives Judiciary Committee Republicans have also been investigating Fonnie Willis and her decision to charge former President Trump and the other co-defendants in this case. The committee chair, Jim Jordan of Ohio, spoke about this with Matt Schlapp, American Conservative Union chair, at the CPAC meeting. I'm not sure if uh, Jimmy Kimmel understood what the title of this uh, conversation is. What you talking about, Willis? Bonnie Willis. Uh, did she get back to you today? Yeah, we subpoenaed her. Not yet. Um, I just talked Wait, to her. Wait, is staff. she supposed to get back to you today? Yeah, she's supposed to get documents. Well, to did us. you hear from her boyfriend? We haven't. So some. I was talking about this in the office, and I said, I said, Fonnie Wade, and it was like a Freudian slip, you know, like, I, I, it's Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade, so, uh, uh, no, we haven't heard back from her yet, we'll see what we get from her, but there's a whistleblower in her office who we have talked to, our, the committee staff, yeah, and she, um, the whistleblower, uh, I think she's like four foot eleven, but Fonnie Willis had seven police, like, escort her out when, when she fired this lady, because this lady raised the concern that Miss Willis was not spending federal funds and the not following the grant, uh, the rules of the grant app and, and, and the grant dollars in the, in the appropriate manner. So uh, she raised this concern and then finally Willis fired her. She's now talking with our office and we'll see where that goes. And that's why we, we subpoenaed for records and documents related to this. We'll see what we get. Uh, there's still a few hours left in today. She also was interesting. She, instead of accepting service on the subpoena, she made us in the U.S. Marshals. Even though our office had talked with her office, we've had correspondence back and forth. She made the U.S. Marshals take the subpoena there. So uh, go figure. This is Fonnie Willis. And we all saw her, I think, her attitude on display when she took the, took the I thought it was a, I thought it was a skit, but I think it actually was real life. It was real. It well, was you know, real. we said, we sent out a tweet that said we didn't invite Fonnie Willis to CPAC, 
but there is a Fonny sandwich with a chaser of Grey Goose vodka if you have enough cash, ready cash in your pocket. Yeah, the, the, the comedy routine from Mr. Slap coming out today, that's awesome. Matt Schlapp is chair of the American Conservative Union, which hosts CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference. And this was at CPAC today, the conversation with Congressman Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio, chair of the Judiciary Committee. Saturday is the South Carolina Republican presidential primary, and C-SPAN's live coverage begins at 7 p.m. Eastern on C-SPAN, radiotelevision.org, and our free mobile app, C-SPAN Now, while the simulcast of South Carolina's ETV coverage of the evening's events from the state capital, Columbia. You will hear local political analysts, experts, and reporters across the state as Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, takes on former President Donald Trump in the presidential primary for the Republican Party. That's Saturday, 7 p.m. Eastern. After that, we will also get candidate speeches and, of course, your calls and reaction. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Subscribe to C-SPAN's free evening newsletter, Word for Word, and get the stories making headlines in Washington sent to your inbox every day. Sign up at cspan.org slash connect. Have a good night and weekend. (laughs) 